Hi everyone and welcome to this EY podcast which provides emerging insights from EY's research on the UK fintech ecosystem commissioned by Innovate Finance and City of London. The research has been conducted to provide insights on how the UK compares to eight different markets around the world and to develop specific considerations for the next stage of fintech evolution. Now firstly for all those listening I hope your family, your friends, your colleagues are safe and well as COVID-19 continues to unfold globally. In these unprecedented times, it can be really hard to wrap our head around the scale of challenges that everyday communities and businesses currently face, let alone think about the future and the long term. Our research hopes to help the fintech sector be stronger and more resilient And we understand that many of the considerations and themes that we'll touch on today may need to be picked up at a later date. At this time, you may be thinking about the future of financial services and the lessons that we can learn from COVID-19. Within a few days, our personal, our working lives have dramatically changed. And through the use of technology, we've had to flexibly adapt the way we work, the way we connect with our family and friends, and the services that we consume. Today's theme is playing on a global stage. How do we nurture and access world-leading fintech talent, both internationally and domestically? And how attractive is the UK on a global stage? My name is Shalini Shan, and I'm a director at EY in the UK Financial Services Strategy Team. I'll be your host today. I'm very happy to be joined by Luke Waddington, CEO and founder of Bluefire AI, Charlotte Croswell, CEO of Innovate Finance, and my colleague Seema Farazi, FSO Global Immigration Partner. Welcome everyone and thanks for joining me today. To start with accessing world-class talent, Seema, COVID-19 presents extraordinary challenges for the macro economy and for the mobility of people, in addition to pre-existing Brexit headwinds. So how do you think these national challenges will impact the fintech talent pipeline? And what do you think fintechs need to be thinking about to protect their people, their operations, and the success of their talent strategies? Thanks, Charlie. And as you'll know, even prior to COVID-19, access to foreign talent has really been one of the most commonly raised challenges for fast growth, UK fintechs in particular. Um, with concerns around speed, cost and process. Um, Access to talent is, of course, critical to support UK fintechs to scale. Um, Around 42% of the UK fintech workforce is drawn from outside of the UK versus around 28% for financial services as a whole. And of that 42%, roughly two thirds uh, is drawn from the EEA. Now, of course, the scale of the travel restrictions that we're seeing implemented um, to to limit the uh, impact of COVID-19 is really unparalleled and presents critical issues um, across sector. What we've basically seen is the Schengen area effectively spending its 25th anniversary in lockdown. There are well over 100 restrictions in play globally. All of that creates real challenges for fintech, uh, particularly where they're operating across multiple regions with talent regularly moving across borders. And there is a real risk for employees who don't hold permanent residence rights in the countries that they're traveling to being denied entry. 
There are other risks as well around remote workers who may be stranded. And while we've seen governments adopt a very flexible approach, um, approaches to prevent those individuals become overstairs, uh, becoming overstairs, uh, they nonetheless are restricted to the type of activity that was permitted on arrival. So, for example, um, opening the laptop and, and remote working may not be uh, feasible in all jurisdictions, depending on the nature of, of entry. So the crisis is really moving in phases around the world. Um, flight bans, we've seen them become almost total border closures. Um, so it's critical to consider at this point, really, what is the exit path out of the crisis? Learning from the experience uh, of those at later stages of the pandemic. Um, and what we're advising uh, people start to think about now really is what is the lockdown exit strategy um, so that you're ready to move as restrictions to start to fall away. We're very likely to see um, a move to a quite different uh, cycle in global immigration where we have restrictions and easements coming in and out. As we saw um, a couple of weekends ago with the reintroduction of measures in um, Asia Pac to deal with the risk of imported COVID. Um, I think added on to that, uh, we are likely to see a new psychology around movement and greater immigration controls being imposed around the health of travellers. Uh, and of course, above all of that, and perhaps one of the most challenging things in these testing times is really to do all of that within um, the values uh, that align with your purpose and really actively planning to protect these values during the crisis. Charlotte, with respect to nurturing the right type and base of domestic talent in the UK, what gaps do you think need to be plugged? Thank you. We've certainly been looking and maybe over-reliant to overseas markets for bringing the talent needed for the fintech sector, particularly around engineering, computer science, data scientists. I've been very encouraged by some of the moves across the UK, particularly in the northeast, and northwest and into Scotland, you know, where they've actually been looking at how we bring in data scientists. You know, some of that will be a five to ten year programme for that to take effect. Um, but really identifying where financial services is moving to and how university degrees and you know, secondary school education will have to change. Um, it's important that we do teach children at an early stage that digital skills are not going to be a nice to have. They are absolutely fundamentally necessary. You know, we're expecting 90 percent of jobs created today to um, to need digital skills. So that's you know, that's as much of teaching the teachers, teaching the children showing them the types of jobs that are changing and why they might want to come and, you know, and work in this sector, um, but also you know, working with industry alongside academia to really identify where the gap is. Um, you know, deliberately, the UK hasn't, you know, hasn't brought through so many engineers in the past, and that's something that's going to have to change. Otherwise, we're always going to be over-reliant. I think the one thing it is been encouraging during the COVID-19 crisis is how much you, it hasn't really mattered where people have been based. Um, you, I know many clusters around the UK that potentially people don't want to come to London and work, but that's where the jobs have been created. Um, and London-based companies haven't been looking at leveraging uh, those links around the UK and sometimes have just gone to overseas for overseas talent um, and outsourced. So definitely an opportunity for us to take a step back, reassess where we are, leverage the incredible talent coming through some of these universities around the country, but also really getting industry to work much closer alongside academia to forecast the types of skills we're going to need in the future. Thanks, Charlotte. I think you're right. This pandemic has really made us uh, revisit how we leverage technology to be better connected within our businesses and within our communities. And that's something that fintech has always been particularly good at. 
Luke, I'd like to get your perspective as a fintech. What is Bluefire AI's approach to attracting and rewarding employees? How are you encouraging the best and brightest minds? And are there any challenges that you face when recruiting talent? Um, yeah, I mean, just to give a little bit of introduction, we're based in um, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, India, um, London and, uh, and the US in, in Canada. So we get a good view of the global framework. I think the key thing for us is, is culture. We've had the luxury of being able to build that from the ground up. Uh, we didn't have one because we we're a new company. So culture for us was very, very important. And we're all about the people and the talent. So it was essential we create you know, a culture which creates the best performance and the environment to work in. And I think this is now being stress tested in the current environment. And does the culture stand up to keep your people safe? Does it stand up to um, communicate and bring them together? And does it stand up to be performant? Um, and so that's a, a really important point. Um, the other thing as well is about sort of at the heart of that culture is about being unconstrained uh, because we've got new problems. And even more now, we're getting more new problems with what's happening that we need to solve. And we find that typical corporate structures and big company structures are very constrained by the nature and the size of the way they've been set up. So what we try and do is always keep an unconstrained view of life so that our talent has that aspiration and creativity can be uh, can be harnessed. And so being unconstrained is, is very important, especially when we're solving problems. And then sort of looking at the challenges, um, and the reason I made the introduction about sort of our, our positioning as a company, um, we're also fortunate that we get to see some of the best um, CVs from all around the world. Um, and there's a massive amount of what we call IQ. So this is mathematics, um, academic, sort of driven skill sets in terms of computer science and so forth. Um, and we just see that the price of that is actually going down because the supply around the world is very, um, not only the quality, but the quantity is, is very high. Um, and then when we look at sort of the, uh, the, the UK um, and what what we really want is a blend of not just IQ, but EQ and EQ, those skills of creativity. Uh, the, the, the example being IQ being the builder uh, and the IQ and the EQ being the artist. And we look for a blend because the, the price of that talent is extremely high and the value of that talent is extremely high um, and, and therefore is, is what's in demand. And so, so what we find in the UK and, you know, in, is a, in comparison to those sort of other countries is that the UK excels very much in that sort of EQ area from a price skill set sort of cost reward benefit. Um, and, and I think that's something that's going to be very much needed as we go forward, especially solving some of the problems that are coming to us. Um, and this, this sort of skill set, this blend is quite difficult to find elsewhere. Great. Thanks, Luke. Seema, reflecting on what Luke has just mentioned about that deep pool of technical talent uh, that is available also in other markets, how do you think the UK's immigration framework can adapt to ensure that the UK attracts the best global talent, particularly as we move beyond 2020 and towards hopefully a post-COVID recovery? Do you think actually that COVID might present opportunities to accelerate certain changes with existing immigration regimes? Well, I mean, before COVID-19 happened, the UK's immigration system, of course, was in the throes of the biggest reforms that we've seen in over four decades triggered by Brexit. And at the time of this recording, those reforms are still planned for delivery in January 2021. 
that was an already challenging timetable. Um, nonetheless, um, that's the that's the current timeline. Um, but it does present a unique opportunity really for the UK to better enable access to foreign talent for the sector and really try and consolidate the UK's status as a global leader for fintech. We know in the background other markets um, in France, Australia have been positioning themselves to better compete for that kind of international talent pool that Luke was talking about um, through very specific tech visa solutions. So I think the key areas of need fall around things like high growth fintech businesses and a tech visa pathway that really has reduced friction and rigidity on things like endorsement, compensation structure, and particularly around equity compensation. A fit for purpose self-sponsor route, allowing for flexibility, mobility and experimentation. The global talent route um, is really seen as too restrictive in this space. And we do know that the government has committed to looking at some kind of additional self-sponsor routes um, at some point in the coming year. And things like the removal of resident labour market testing, we know that the government has an intention uh, and will remove that in January 2021. Um, but why not bring that forward and deliver some kind of welcome um, easement um, to business now? Um, to, your, to, to the point that you made in your question, one of the really good things that we've seen with COVID-19 is the incredible potential for accelerated change in immigration and really for a rethinking of what's achievable, both from an operational um, and a policy perspective. The Home Office's uh, response and the kind of flexible immigration policies that we've seen around COVID-19 have been very well received at this really difficult time. And what we would strongly encourage is that they use this, they use these achievements to deliver real flexibility and transformation in that new system. Thank you, Seema. Luke, you mentioned that there were some other markets that you have first experience, first-hand experience of, um, particularly in Asia-Pac. Um, what do you think that we can learn from these other markets, particularly around supporting seamless access to, to foreign talent? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably worth just framing a couple of examples and making it quite pragmatic sort of to the point. I mean, we operate in Singapore um, and there's a, a government entity, Enterprise Singapore, and they have a, a specific set of uh, visa programs to allow us to bring in talent. So what that's allowed us to do is actually consolidate quite a lot of our teams into Singapore. So we're consolidating our team um, from India um, and and some of the resources from from Hong Kong, um, all into Singapore. And we get a, a an upfront allocation of visas to be able to do that. Um, so that allocation of visas, um, you know, against certain criteria. Um, gives us stability, gives us forward planning, and it doesn't mean it's sort of up to, and we're always worrying on each individual on each individual's application um, because it's done in a sort of allocation level. Um, there are certain then restrictions within the Singapore framework on certain quotas that they are putting in place between sort of foreign to local workers. But I think in the specifically in the fintech and the skills that we're looking at, um, that that's not really ever been as a as an issue. Um, in Hong Kong. Um, there are very specific visas to bring in talent and there what we're doing is we're, we're much more working with um, and it's probably more of a nature to our business in, in the sense that we're working in a lot of R&D frameworks so anyone with master's qualifications and PhD qualifications not only do we get um, the, the visa fast tracking and, and application but also dedicated funding um, and so uh, we get 30% wage support for, for uh, master's uh, graduates and 50% wage support for PhD um, uh, uh, joiners. 
Um, so we get this sort of collective encouragement of just not just the immigration framework, but also then the government support with it. And, and then there's a very specific one, which is a visa situation between um, mainland China and Hong Kong um, and, and accessing uh, talent into into Hong, Hong Kong, uh, which I think is, um, uh, you know, it's probably a bit away from this podcast, but it's uh, it's also just there for, for, for completeness. Thank you, Luke. And I guess using that to move on to our second but very much related theme of the UK's attractiveness on a global stage. Um, if you consider inbound fintech activity from global fintechs into the UK, what attributes do you think the UK fintech sector are the most appealing to global fintech businesses? Um, and what learnings can the UK take from other global hubs in order to enhance, improve our attractiveness? Um, yeah, I think that, you know, obviously we look from outside in and we, we're setting up and establishing in the UK. So we've done quite a big assessment of, you know, the advantages of the UK. And to be sort of quite blunt and pragmatic to the point, I think the main um, key strengths of the UK is, is access to a very deep pool of capital. And I think that capital has got a lot of experience and understanding um, of the fintech and technology sector. Um, so capital is a, is a key thing. Um, and I think then it's clients, um, you know, and it's revenue and it's cash flow from those clients. So, you know, in Asia, we have a running joke, which is that, you know, when we talk to people in global institutions that, you know, everybody has a boss um, and usually that boss is in, in London. Um, and therefore, a lot of activity and marketing activities is done in London because of clients. So that access to capital and clients, you know, which is the lifeblood of companies is very key. Um, that said, um, I think there are other progressive centres out there and there's a structural point that I think that the UK needs to sort of look at within its strategy of building out the ecosystem. And that is that at the moment it's very reliant on post um, spending um, support. So tax credits and things like that. So we're in the business of doing things like R&D, um, inventing new things um, and and, um, and also working with clients on quite big change programs, commonly called sort of proof of concepts, POCs. Um, and what happens in certain other centres, and um, you know, I'll bring up Asia as an example, is that there are pre-programme funding available. And pre-programme funding is very important. Um, so if we take an R&D example, then what I'd have to do in a UK scenario right now is probably have to capitalise that R&D spending. So to capitalise that, I would probably have to sell part of my company in terms of capital raising to be able to do that upfront sort of R&D to sort of co-fund a strategy of the government to sort of progress and invent new things in, in the uh, AI space. Um, for me, that means that I become this conduit as a company to just transfer capital onto a um, government strategy structurally. And what I'd like to do is say, well, why can't we do that upfront? Um, and therefore, I don't just become a, a conduit because um, a person who benefits in that out of those people, you know, the capital, the company and the government strategy, it's too biased towards the capital benefiting rather than the company being incentivized to then provide more and, and collaborate onto the government structure uh, strategy. Um, and then in terms of if we go to um, uh, uh, POCs, this proof of concept, a lot of companies and clients that we talk to, they want to do sort of thing because they're a bit nervous of this big change, want to do smaller um, little experiments, um, which are going to have very limited and low probability of success because they're short term and they're quite sort of contained. But what we've seen in Singapore, where there's some upfront funding with, say, things like the ADA grant, 
where what they'll do is fund some large corporations or, or corporations that want to change, but in the longer frame, in the more strategic framework. And they have to show the whites of their eyes that they really want to change. Um, and they want to you know, demonstrate that the programs are really valid. But the, the government there take the view that the future value of doing that transformation with the companies over a longer frame is much more beneficial than the present value upfront funding. And I think these kind of structural pieces is something that needs to be built into the armory of the UK fintech system. Because then we would create R&D, we would create more proof of concepts and the actual pragmatic nature of change starts to occur quicker. Thanks, Luke. Charlotte, perhaps building on that, you have a great macro bird's eye view of the UK fintech sector. What do you think that the fintech sector could do to increase its attractiveness on a global stage, both in terms of inbound and outbound fintech activity? Thank you. you know, it's, it's quite clear that the UK is incredibly good at innovation and incubation. You know, we see so many companies across tech and fintech um, you know, starting here and growing their, growing their companies. But we are quite a small country, you know, as one investor said, you know, what's your what's your proof that you can start a company here, but then you can take it to a global company. And that's really important for us to prove that, that we can do that, because if we can't, we're always going to be limited on the UK market. You know, as Luke was saying, you we are sitting in the epicentre, we have an incredible time zone advantage, English law, which is incredibly well respected around the world. And people do look to the UK for that innovation and certainly within the fintech sector that's happened. Um, but we shouldn't be shy on how we can progress, how we can push ourselves and how we can look at those overseas markets of what they've done to support their companies. You know, I sometimes find you that we're good at supporting the ones who start here you know, and who've, who've taken their own risk themselves. Maybe we could do more at attracting companies you know, to come to the UK. We've seen, you know, we've seen some starts of that. You know, the fintech bridges that have been built in association with industry, with regulators and government have been a good example of what can be um, you know, leveraged. But it's still quite early days for those. And I've been encouraged by some of the cohorts that have been coming across those bridges. And I think now is the time to take that step back, look at those overseas markets, look at what's best in class. Perhaps it is in Singapore, perhaps it is in the US and Canada, but also look to emerging markets of what they've done, you know, taking the technology into fin rather than the fin into tech and ensuring that actually you know, we are taking the best in class of those markets and learning from that and pushing ourselves to drive more. You know, and you know, there is still a consideration the UK does not have the ability to bring the growth capital, the scaling capital into companies you know, that are based here who, who choose to come here and grow. And I think that's something we, we have to do more on looking potentially at the you know, defined contribution pensions and whether we can get them to invest in some of these innovative companies, um, but also not being shy of going to overseas funds and attracting them into UK. It has still been a world-trodden path for some of the tech firms, certainly my, my capital markets days back at the end of the 90s, where you know, tech companies would go to the US to IPO and would go to raise significant amounts of money. There's no reason why we can't push ourselves to be to be that capital market that produces companies that can attract an investment from wherever it is, but particularly UK patient capital, and become global fintech leaders that stay here, grow here, but have that ability to export. I think that is incredibly important. I said to you, most people would, would say that the UK has done an incredible job in its leadership and its regulatory um, support of the sector. But that won't be enough as the markets become more competitive and we're going to have to push ourselves to look to those overseas markets and look at what needs to be changed. Maybe from decades of not changing it 
and saying, how do we use this sector to learn and then take that to a global scale? And I think that's where the real opportunity is. Great. Thank you, everyone. I hope you'll all agree that it's been a really insightful discussion with it, with a real mix of perspectives. Some of the key things that I've taken away from it are, firstly, whilst, as Seema said, whilst COVID presents extraordinary challenges, particularly for global mobility and talent, it also presents an opportunity down the track to consider how immigration frameworks can work better for high growth fintechs and actually accelerate change. At the same time, on the domestic talent uh, front, there is scope to enhance our domestic talent pipeline by having a national talent strategy, as Charlotte mentioned, and increasing talent supply across broader financial services. And that really requires us to think and understand the current and future skills gaps and collaborate with the education sector more broadly. And thirdly, as Luke said, the, the UK is attractive to global fintechs, particularly for its deep pool of capital and potential clients. But other global centres, including those in Asia-Pac, I think Luke mentioned Singapore, Hong Kong, are increasingly progressive on those fronts. So more is needed for us to stay ahead on a global stage. And I guess finally, as raised by Charlotte, the UK could benefit from a targeted approach to supporting inbound and outbound fintech activity. And that's going to require us to build on those existing bilateral arrangements, as well as showcase our success, attract global capital and consider how to really support fintechs as they expand into new markets. I'd like to say thank you to Luke, Charlotte and Seema for taking the time to share their insights today. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please look out for other episodes in this series and the full report, which will be published later this year. Thank you.